0: Welcome to The Human Advantage, a podcast from the Centre for Army Leadership, which explores the more personal and tactical applications of leadership. In each episode, we meet someone who's experienced the highs and lows of leading, in situations ranging from major combat operations to challenges in barracks. We explore what they've learned about leadership to help our junior leaders prepare for success on operations today and in the future. I'm your host, Ash Bardwaj, a journalist and broadcaster and a British Army Reserve captain with the rifles. In this episode, we learn why it's important to have difficult conversations as soon as possible.
1: Every time you have an interaction that you think you should do something about at the time, please do it, because the older version of you will still think about that. Even months, years down the line, you'll still think about I really should have said something, I really should have done something. Even though we try and suppress that and think I'm a good leader, I'd like to do the right thing, you'll still think about those little interactions. So please be brave, be courageous, attack those conversations.
0: And we explore the challenges of offering emotionally intelligent feedback.
1: I found myself on a regular basis having to build up to those conversations, having to have those conversations in a particular way, having to really recognise the person that I was speaking to and how they needed to hear that feedback to get the result that I needed. Just bringing a really, really human approach, more so than I thought I expected to.
0: Lieutenant Tess Morris-Patterson joined the East Midlands Officer Training Corps in 2007 and rejoined the army reserve in 2018. After completing trade training as a combat engineer, she commissioned as an officer and joined 135 Geographic Squadron Royal Engineers as a troop commander. In her civilian career, Tess has worked in elite and professional sport for 12 years, including work with the Premier League, Formula 1, and Olympic and Paralympic medal winners. In 2019, she began working on human spaceflight and spent a stint at NASA's Ames Research Center. She completed a PhD in aerospace physiology and founded her own company, which specialises in the selection and training of astronauts. In this episode, we explore how the civilian experience of Army reservists can benefit the wider military, in terms of applied skills and personal interactions that are essential to leadership and followership. I started by asking Tess about why she decided to join the Army Reserve as a soldier, 11 years after leaving the University Officer Training Corps.
1: It was very much to develop my skills. I had decided that in the pursuit of another one of my goals, that quite a lot of my characteristics that I looked at, one that was missing was my ability to follow others. I'd spent a long time working on my leadership skills and actually I felt that I hadn't really spent that long working out how I follow other people well. So one of them was to become a soldier and to actually really humble myself, I guess you could could say.
0: So you joined the Signals first and then you became a sapper. How was that experience? What did you learn about followership from being a soldier?
1: I joined the Royal Engineers because I really wanted to build my skill set. So I realised throughout life that essentially a lot of the things that I was doing, I didn't really understand how they worked. So, for example, the Royal Engineers put me through some engine training, electrician training. I even went to do some welding. I built some amazing sets of skills.
0: But you then went on to do a reserve commission and become a second lieutenant in the Royal Engineers. Yep. What was that choice like, and how did that change your experience of being in the Army Reserve?
1: I decided to become a commissioned officer because a few of the experiences that I had as a sapper were that I didn't necessarily feel the sappers in my unit were well represented in terms of their careers. And actually, I felt becoming a commissioned officer, I could actually do something about that.
0: And one of the challenges of being an Army Reserve officer is that the people you're looking after, your soldiers, in the civilian world, they probably earn more than you. They may be more professionally qualified than you. How did you manage that? What kind of challenges and opportunities did that present?
1: That is definitely true with the unit that I'm at presently. So I'm at a geo unit and all of my soldiers have got incredible skill sets. So one works for government and identify sites using different satellite systems. And one, he's the director of an aerospace company. Yeah, he's a, he's a private soldier. <laughs> so I'd say definitely some of them outrank me civilian wise. And that can present itself with challenges because when you step through the gates, you're still a junior soldier and you still need to play the army game. That can present challenges because they might be earning a huge amount of money. And when they become a reserve soldier, they might be earning 40 to £50 pounds a day. And it doesn't matter to them. What they're there for isn't the money at all, which I think for some people you work to earn money. Um, but for most of them, that actually they're there to gain other skills and to be told what to do sometimes.
0: Are there any examples of how that plays out in leadership for you?
1: I would say I definitely need to lead people differently in the unit that I'm at at the moment. So for a start, the geo-regular soldiers that I've encountered have been absolutely phenomenal. Super intelligent people. You have really emotionally intelligent discussions with them. So they're almost a different subset of soldier anyway. But certainly when you move into the reserve space, it's that times a thousand. For instance, I have one junior soldier who has a PhD in AI and helps the army to identify parachute landing sites or helps the commandos to look at water levels and things like that when you're looking at his contribution in the field, for instance, it may not be that that particular person is great at a section attack, but the level of contribution that they supply the army with in so many other respects is absolutely phenomenal. So you definitely need to manage these people differently.
0: Are there any examples like that where you've ended up having to do something outside of what your military rank would be doing, but your civilian skills have enabled you to do that? And what did you learn Yeah, very much
1: so. And One instance would be for six months, I did a OC role where my OC at the unit was a reserve OC.
0: And the OC is the person who would look after the squadron, so in charge. Yes, of about absolutely. It's,
1: it's someone who would have typically eighty to one hundred soldiers and three troops, which encompass around thirty people per troop. So, in a reserve unit, we don't always have full capacity. Similar to a regular unit, you don't always have full capacity owing to people being injured or being away. So, the officer commanding role in our unit was more of a quartermaster role, or it's somewhere in between. So, it's actually quite a unique role for the reserve space because of the reserve officer commanding not always. Being present. So it's the day to day running of the unit, and that would typically be done by someone who has gone through the soldier ranks and then become a captain and be late captain to major, which you'd usually spend sort of 20 to 25 years getting to that space. With that role, that included a lot of management of more senior non commissioned officers, so senior soldiers. It would include the management of the troops and their training, the vehicles, the stores and essentially the training plan as well. So we would call that G7 training and how training is planned. It's quite a large responsibility for someone that's only got two years after commissioning to take on that role.
0: What was that like for you? How did your civilian skills bridge the gap of your lack of military experience? And did you have any particular challenges in that?
1: When I came into the army, I come from an elite sport and professional sport background. So we have very, very frank discussions. And one really... Interesting point that I didn't think I'd have to taper for the army was being uh, a little bit more careful with the feedback that I was providing people with. So I would start off by going in with, "Okay, great, this is what needs to be improved and this is how we need to do it. And this is what I expect from you next time I see you, which for me isn't a personal assault at all on that person. It's frankly what needs to be done and then how we can achieve it. And the army is a very task orientated organisation. We need to get stuff done. For the troops. Whereas I found myself on a regular basis having to build up to those conversations, having to have those conversations in a particular way, having to really recognise the person that I was speaking to and how they needed to hear that feedback in order for me to get the result that I needed. Just bringing a really, really human approach, more so than I thought I expected to.
0: And did you have any other specific challenges of managing senior soldiers whilst you were doing either that job or your job as a troop commander?
1: Yeah, one of the interesting points for me is that quite often there's some insecurities still lying with senior soldiers, where perhaps in the past they haven't necessarily had the most academic of careers, or they haven't had the same experience, for example, that I've been lucky to have in my career so far, where I've learned and developed skills. So I think the army is great in developing skills in some respects, but in other respects not so much. So I'll give you one simple example Someone that's been in the army for 15 years, I asked them to put some time in my diary, which for me is quite a simple request. Can you put some time in my diary for tomorrow afternoon? It didn't happen. So in the end, I spoke to them and said, I'm still not seeing you putting a meeting in. I don't understand what's, what's going on. And they didn't understand how to do it. But instead of asking me how to do it, they tried to deflect and come to my office. For me, managing my diary is really important because when you're quite busy, you obviously need to allocate time specifically for different tasks. And I I love doing that personally, because it means I can get a lot more done in my time. But when people just approach your office, and I'm very happy to have ad hoc discussions, but when they don't know how to do something fundamentally, and they've avoided trying to do that for such a long period in their careers, I think, yeah, that is a problem. So I think some of that deflection of skills that haven't been gained is something that I noticed that I haven't noticed in my civilian career. What
0: was the outcome of that specific incident and how did you manage it?
1: I think always it's with kindness. So you've got to, I guess, identify where that person is coming from, where they've been at in their career and also what the army environment is for them. Has it been the environment where they've had to strive for everything and they've had to compete against people and they've had to almost put up this persona about who they are in order for the more senior ranks when it comes to boards that they are up there. and actually that disguise is one that they may not even be aware that they've got, but certainly exists so vividly to me. I think absolutely just approaching everything with kindness and making sure that when they speak to you, that it's absolutely kept locked tight. They know that conversation is going no further. It's not even a question that it needs to be said, that they know you as a person, it's not going any further than that. Another instance I had with a a senior soldier and someone who had been in the army actually for 30 years, I'd asked them to write a report on someone as an outline of that person's year, what they'd achieved, all of the good stuff that they had done, but also some development points as well. So we've got a specific format for that in the army that a lot of people will be um, familiar with. Essentially, it's something that you just expect senior soldiers to be able to do because throughout their careers, they will have done that delivering feedback to people. With this particular person, I gave them a very simple request to write a report on someone and it was delayed and it was delayed. I asked them specifically to come to my office to discuss it because I wasn't happy with the timelines that had been outlined and then me not hearing anything back. And the way that that person approached it was with 100% aggression. He leant over my desk, shouted at me, this is a six foot person and My stature is definitely not six foot. So as as you can imagine, it's quite an intimidating situation. The door was open, but not many people around. And there's not many times in my life where I've been approached by someone in quite such an aggressive manner.
0: I mean, that sounds like quite an intimidating experience. I mean, I'd find a senior soldier who's much bigger than me leaning over my desk and shouting at me in an intimidating situation. And for any junior officer, I imagine that's difficult. How did you respond in that moment and then taking it forwards.
1: Going back to your civilian experience, really helping your military career. I have had so many instances. I I think within my career in sport and professional sport, and certainly after that in my, my career in spaceflight, where I've been in all male dominated environments, and I know that the response that I'm seeing right now is not the person that they are. That's not who they represent, and that's not what they're about. I've seen that person in so many different scenarios. Being so much different to this, right? So my immediate response was, I need to think about calming myself to give this person the response that they need right now to change who I'm seeing, because it's completely unacceptable. It's not what I would expect from a senior soldier who's leaving the army within three months. And... I don't have the capacity to be able to shout back at this person and meet their level of aggression because that's not going to help our situation. So I think all my experience working with people generally has led to me thinking, okay, straight away, what do I need to do to de-escalate this situation?
0: How did you do that? And did you then take it forward into a disciplinary procedure, which would sort of be what the guidelines and policy asks you to do?
1: I'm someone who is absolutely straight down the line. I think anyone who's worked with me would understand that actually I follow policy to the letter. And that can be enabling and it can be disabling. But at the same time, it is what we're expected to do as commissioned officers. In this instance, I asked him to go away, take some time, really think about what has just happened. Come back to me when you're ready and we will have another discussion about what's just happened. And he continued shouting at me. And continued leaning over my desk and continued to be aggressive. I don't need time to take away. I don't know what you're insinuating. And it actually made it worse. So I sort of lowered my voice even more. It's very difficult to do that when someone's shouting at you. And just said, right, I need you to go away because I don't like what I'm seeing right now. (laughs) And I think that shocked him a little. It was enough of a change of situation for him to be like, right, okay, actually, I think I can see what I've done here. So I went to speak to him later on and I explained what could happen from here moving forward with the actions that I've just seen and actually the decision is with me.
0: And so what did you decide to do after that?
1: Every situation is unique. So whilst the policy is there and we should be following it, I decided, having spoken also with my chain of command, that I didn't feel that I wanted to take it further. And the reason for that was is that I hadn't seen that person do that ever before. I know that that is a reflection of his insecurity with the task that I've asked him to do. And actually, it will be more of a learning opportunity for him if I talk him through how that made me feel, how that's completely unacceptable, in particular for a woman sitting in that situation. So explaining to him actually why, as me as a person, how that made me feel, and what implications that had for me moving forward, and trying to really get down to him and as as relating to me on a personal level. Unfortunately, we didn't really achieve that, and he didn't really understand that I wasn't bringing it forward because it had huge implications for him. Three months before leaving the army, however, it was my decision to make. I decided that it didn't reflect him as an individual, generally speaking, and that actually he could leave the army with his head held high and with thanks rather than with a disciplinary hearing hanging over him.
0: That's interesting because you've taken that choice not because you wanted gratitude from him or expected gratitude from him, even though it was in his best interest that you took that choice. I suppose that's a leadership lesson, really. Sometimes we do things as leaders that benefit the person that we're leading, but we're not doing it for gratitude. We're just doing it because it's the right thing. Something you briefly mentioned earlier that I think is very important to talk about is the fact that you went through astronaut selection and work now in helping prepare, train and select astronauts. I mean, that's absolutely remarkable. They're some of the most qualified and competent people on Earth and off it, hopefully. What have you learned from that that you think is applicable for the military in terms of elite people working together as a team, number one, the fact that you might even get selected but never actually do your job, so you always have to be prepared, and also trained for failure. So there's three different things there that I'd love you to talk about and how you've learned from it.
1: One of the key things that I learned through working with astronauts is how much emphasis they put on human behaviour characteristics and competencies. So the CAL for instance has developed a really comprehensive set of competencies that we should expect from our leadership journey, irrespective of what rank you are. And the Astronaut Corps also does that and I would suggest possibly goes a step further because it specifically tells astronauts when they are interacting with other people, what would be expected from every single scenario that they encounter. And whilst we can't always predict exactly what those might be, It means that they get training and feedback on an almost constant basis about how they are behaving and interacting and how that affects other people. I really do think the army could benefit from even going down to that granular detail. So that can be viewed that we don't trust you. We don't trust how you might act. And therefore, here is specifically how we think you should act. Whereas when you're a really competent person and you believe in your professional endeavours, actually, that's incredibly helpful because for me as a professional person, even, I've learned so much about the way that I interact with people in teams and the way that I come across. That's really helped my professional career, despite not being successful in astronaut selection. The second thing that you mentioned there was about the way that we prepare ourselves for the environment that we're going to be in, how we can prepare for it, but possibly never enact it. And I I think an astronaut is all about being that. So for instance, some of the longest time that people have spent preparing to go to space has been 11 years. I think Karen Nyberg spent maybe eight years preparing for, for NASA. And that's a huge amount of time to be selected. Oh my God, I'm so excited about going to space. Right? Oh my God, I'm so excited to be selected to be a private soldier, but I'm then not able to actually put the skills that I have into practice. And actually, that really brings a whole big question about your character. Are you willing to wait and prepare? And that is an important role in itself to be the person that's waiting in the sidelines. But when I get bored on, whether that's the final minute of a FA Cup final, or you're in the Rugby World Cup final and you're the person that's coming on to possibly score that final drop kick, Whatever it might be, there's a huge amount of pride for me in that. That being that person that's not necessarily there right on the forefront, but is willing to step up when it matters.
0: So the analogy for soldiers there is the fact that you could spend years in training. You can go through your initial training, you can go through your trade training, you can go through your promotional training... And you may not get on operations until quite far down the line, but it's about knowing that you have that mindset for it. One of the things I've heard about astronaut training is that they always think about how it can go wrong and then what do you do in that moment. Almost training to failure all the time so that they feel confident if that scenario does occur, I know what to do. How do you see that happening in the military and is there anything we can learn from that?
1: The Astronaut Corps... Prior to being selected, you have to think about your own demise. I could die in this particular situation, and spaceflight, is it's a very dangerous pursuit still, even though that we've perfected a lot of it, actually, there's still a lot of unknowns and um, because we've only had nine hundred people go to space so far or just less. so what we know about it is still very limited, and that's only going to get more unclear as we go to the moon and to Mars. I think that's true with the transition to speaking about military operations, that actually speaking about and being comfortable with your own death is an incredibly important conversation to have. And actually, I'm not a frontline person, so I don't know how and when those conversations happen. All I can say is that they absolutely need to be content that when the worst situation possibly arises, that they are so prepared that they're almost comfortable and relaxed with it and that's certainly what we do with astronauts that when the worst possible situation occurs and there's been quite a few recently actually one instance springs to mind with one of our Italian astronauts went out on a spacewalk and his helmet started to fill with water and he had 32 minutes to close up his task move to the outer airlock and then get through in time to not drown It's really interesting hearing his experience of that and how his training has really prepared him for the worst possible situation. If you can imagine travelling 17,500 miles per hour, 300 miles above Earth, and you could drown.
0: And I suppose that's why we have such intense simulations of military training to consider all these moments. So as well as working on astronaut selection, you've also worked around elite and professional sport and in some quite remarkable places. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what you've taken from it?
1: My elite and professional sport journey, I think, has been the biggest growing opportunity of my life. So, first of all, as a young person coming out of university, I got so many different opportunities to work with different people. I started off working at Liverpool John Moores University and got opportunities with Man United and with Everton Football Club.
0: And what were you doing with them?
1: At that point, I was doing sports science testing. And then I went on to do more sports science testing with the Premier League in general. So I was developing different strategies for them from a sports science and nutrition perspective. And that was brilliant as someone who's always been a massive fan of football, working with all the top clubs, going to games, going to training grounds, working with the backroom staff, physios, medics, nutrition staff.
0: We could go on talking for ages because you've got such a vast experience of working with elite people, training elite people, thinking about teams and followership. But we do like to finish with three questions. First of all, how would you like to relax?
1: One of my practices for astronaut selection was to go on a simulated selection with another selection process. And this was the question that they asked me. And it was really interesting because I was not prepared for it at all. I had spent the last four years absolutely grinding to perfect everything about my CV and my character. And I thought, ah... You've managed to catch me out with just one sleight of hand, and you've seen me exactly who I am. I'm a busy person, and I like to keep busy and I like to achieve things, and I'm always on the go. How I like to relax now. So, I've reflected on this a lot, and it's walking my dog, it's having a lovely coffee with my wife, and us talking about our day. I do use headspace, and I know that the army is brilliant at providing headspace for people. That has been a massive challenge for me to actually be good at what I would call meditating and really being at one with my thoughts so I'd say those three things are my favourites. Are
0: there any books, podcasts, movies, events that have taught you something about leadership that you like to share with others?
1: Honestly most of my experiences and learnings from leadership have come from real life. I would say for example for the 10,000 hours of podcasts that I've listened to I've bought away 10 seconds of something that someone said where I thought, yeah, that really applies to me. And I can really apply it in my environment. And I've really learned something from what you've just said. All of my bookshelf is leadership books and things that I'm really interested in. But I would say it's those little snippets. So I would suggest probably comes from real life and investigating your own actions and getting feedback from real life people that know you and can give you some really vivid thoughts to go away with and think about.
0: Finally, if you were to go back to speak to yourself when you started your first day here at Sandhurst for officer training, what would be your advice?
1: When I started my officer training, I was already 36 years old and I'd already had quite a lengthy career, both very fortunate to lead people in professional elite sport and to lead people in the aerospace astronaut environment. So I would probably speak to a much, much younger version of me at OTC. Every time you have an interaction that you think you should do something about at the time, please do it. Because the older version of you will still think about that. Even months, years down the line, you'll still think about, I really should have said something. I really should have done something. Even though we try and suppress that and think, actually... I'm a good person, I like, I'm a good leader, I like to do the right thing, you'll still think about those little interactions. So please be brave, be courageous, Like attack those conversations like the future you is going to be proud.
0: Tess, thank you very much for talking to us.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Ash.
0: Tess is a great example of how experiences in the civilian sector can be really beneficial to the army through the army reserve, particularly when it comes to the competencies that we're looking for in leadership and followership. Her experience in the astronaut corps and in elite sport has clearly helped in her military career. The incident with the senior soldier is also an example of moral courage, doing the right thing on a difficult day when nobody's watching, and using those levels of insight about delivering policy and guidance in an appropriate way and also doing things for the people you're leading not because you want congratulations for yourself but because it can be the right thing for the individual and the organization this was an episode of the human advantage from the center for army leadership it was produced and presented by ash bartwaj of digital dandy and co-produced by lucy Ditchmond, of feast collective What you hear on each episode are the views of the participants and do not represent the position of the Centre for Army Leadership, the British Army or the UK Government. Please rate and subscribe to The Human Advantage on your podcast app where you can find more episodes. If you enjoyed this episode, do send it to any friends and colleagues that you think might appreciate it, and maybe even share it on social media. For more information about developing leadership, just search online for the Centre for Army Leadership. Thanks for listening.